What a sweet time of worship today. Like, I, I, I just feel like over the past few weeks, we started this series called Empty the Stage, and we just wanted to kind of talk about spiritual disciplines without the fluff and without the pageantry and like kind of what, if, what would happen if all we had was Jesus and one another? What if we kind of dialed down the consumerism? What if we dialed down the individualism? What if we dialed down the entertainment and we dialed up just a heartfelt love for Jesus? Just uh, being with each other and with him. And I don't know about you guys, but being outside a few weeks ago, just the worship times that we've had in the last few weeks, I've felt like there's just been a, a really sweet spirit in our community. Uh, and, and I feel like we're getting, we're like dialing into the heart of something. Uh, and I just want us to pay attention to that as a community. Uh, I, I think something happens when we pursue God together in the same direction. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why worship is so powerful, is we're all singing the same songs, and we're proclaiming the same things, and we're moving in the same direction, and we're praying in the same way. And so I just want to encourage us, as we, even as we exit this series and move into the Christmas season, and, and as we move into the new year, and all the busyness and craziness that comes with this, I just want to encourage us, let's just keep dialing in to, I just want to be with Jesus, and I'm just grateful for who he is. And so today, I, I want to talk about crushing the idols. Uh, and uh, I, I, was, uh, I was hired at a church in Louisville, Kentucky. It's, it's, uh, at that time, it was the second largest church uh, in the nation. I was hired as their middle school pastor, which I've always said, middle school, people that work with the middle school are the holiest of holy. Like the, the middle schoolers are difficult. They're hard. A middle school girl is the meanest mammal on the planet. Like I, I just really believe that it's, it's holy work to work in the middle school. I started as the middle school pastor. Uh, I, I think I turned like 28 or 29 and I got a promotion where I oversaw ages zero to 30 at this giant church. I have no idea why they hired. It was a terrible decision to hire me to do. Like, I'm, I'm serious. It was a really bad decision. I was too young. I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never managed, I, like, I think the biggest team I'd managed was like 10. And I all of a sudden had a team of 125 leaders reporting to me. Uh, and, and we did this thing with our high school ministry about idolatry. And, and the, the phrase that we used was crush the idols. And so when I was preparing for this, I just noticed the title was the same. And I started thinking back to this. And we were at camp. We did it at camp. And this church did camp a little differently than we do camp. They owned their own camp. Uh, they, it was, there were like trips to space at the camp. Like you could like do a Spock thing and like teleport to different, like it, they had everything you would ever want at a camp. Like everything a child would want, they had it. Uh, and so we would go and we'd do camp and, and hundreds of kids would show up. And so we're at camp one week and uh, I'm sitting in the back and it's like second night of camp and we're preaching about idolatry and it's a crush the idols kind of thing. And then the next day we had this thing where the different groups were going out and they were taking walks around the campus and they were praying, right? Like, Lord, break the idols in me. Teach me to follow you. I want you and nothing else. It was a really, we were like, this is going to be great. It's going to be amazing. Uh, 
So all these high school kids are running around, they're praying all over camp, and there's like this guided prayer experience. And one of the groups was led by one of our young leaders that I had hired personally. Uh, And I was young, and I was energetic, and I was excited, and I was a little renegade in the way that I thought about things. And so I hired leaders who were young and energetic and a little renegade in the way that they pursued things. And this guy was one of our worship leaders. He was actually one of our best worship leaders and incredible guy. Uh, and he took this, his group, which was like 30 kids, up to the top of this hill. It wasn't a mountain. We were in Kentucky. It was a hill. Uh, I, like, I even think Kennesaw Mountain. I'm like, eh, it's a stretch, right? Are you with me? Like, it's, it's more like Kennesaw Big Hill. Uh, but, but like, it, it, was, it was the top of this hill. And at the top of this hill, they get up to the top, and, and they see there's this, like, altar that's been built there. And uh, we didn't know it was there. Like, when we had gone up the last time, it wasn't there. But there was this altar there, and there was this statue, and there was just some things there. And, and one of the kids is like, crush the idols! <laughs> and they literally took this altar and destroyed it. And our young leader, who was up there, did not say, stop it. That's not a good idea. Uh, the consequence of that was that was a place where a sweet lady who lived next door came and prayed... She actually went and took it to the newspapers. Uh, The newspapers then took it to the Associated Press. Uh, This was in the news cycle for an entire week of how megachurch destroys statues of Mary. And I'm like, oh boy, this is not great. I get called into the lead pastor's office. Now, the lead pastor's office at this church was very different than, like, my office. Uh, The the church had seven stories. Uh, It's the largest auditorium in the country. Their their auditorium seats, I think, 20,000. And at the top was his office. And so you have to take these elevators, but before you can even get into the elevators to get to the lead pastor, you have to be dialed in. So you've got to call the admin, and they scan, like you're going to the penthouse is really what it is. So I go up there, and I sit down, and I'm terrified, right? I'm a young leader. This is kind of the first time something's been happening. I know what leaders are supposed to do when somebody on their team makes a mistake. I'm like, this is my fault. I didn't train him well enough. I didn't say we weren't really talking about crushing the idols. Like, it was figurative. It was metaphorical. We probably shouldn't break down old ladies' prayer times like this is all bad everywhere and I get in the office and he looks at me and he's like hey it's all fine I'm going to stand up in front of the church Sunday and I'm going to tell the entire church it's my fault not me him and we'll be okay with this it's going to be okay I had this amazing lesson of leadership from him but then at the end of it he said but maybe we should also talk to your leaders And tell them that it's okay to crush your idols, but maybe you shouldn't go about crushing everybody else's. So today I want to talk about crushing the idols. And when we talk about an idol, what we're talking about is anything that competes for our affection. Anything that's fighting for my affection. Anything that that begins to take God's place in our life. 
And if you think about our spiritual journey, our, our, our spiritual journey of growth and understanding and, and, and maturity, uh, it, it all is framed through what Augustine called this. Augustine said this, he said, discipleship, and he didn't say it in these words, but he said, discipleship is a reorientation of our loves that are out of order. So he talked about the greatest thing that we need to grow in Christ is to understand that our loves are out of order and that we need to figure those out. We need to reorient our loves that are out of order. And I need to figure out, oh, I love this more than I love this. And I think God wants me to love this more than I love this. And so I've got to reorient my loves. And the question becomes, how do we do that, right? One of the ways we do that is is what we've been talking about, is we just sit in his presence. We're with him. We love him. We trust him. We know him. We walk with him. We're in his word. We're praying with him. We're affectionate towards the Father. We want the things that the Father wants for our life. We know that he's been faithful, and we've learned to trust him over time, over and over and over again. But in my life, there's been all of these moments where my loves were out of order. I think all of us could say this, right? I think there's been times when I loved my job way more than I should have. Anybody there? I I think there's been times when I loved money more than I should have. Anybody there? I think there's been times when I've loved status more than I should have. I think there's been times when I've loved affection or attention more than I should have. I think there's been times when I loved accomplishment, like getting things done, checking things off the list, saying I did it more than I should have. I think there's been times when I loved sports way more than I should have. Right? I think there are times when I was, yeah, well, we won't even get into that. There's a, game, there's a game next Saturday that I am entirely too much invested in. If you know me, there's some cheaters up north, and they need to lose. <laughs> I, I am so like, but there's all of these times where our, our, our loves get out of order, Right? And, and, and we start falling in love with the wrong thing. So, so for example, like our, our love for truth should be higher than our love for money, right? I was talking with Aiden this week, and Aiden was telling me about an example of, of this moment where he was working somewhere, and somebody was lying to somebody else because that lying made their bonus higher, and so they were not equitably dealing with the people that they were working with in their business ventures, so they were lying so that they could get dollars. Our love for truth should be higher than our love for money. Are you with me, right? Uh, our, our love for people should be better than our popularity. So if I'm hanging out with Angie and Angie tells me a secret and she's like, hey, Ben, I want to tell you this thing. And then I'm at a party next week and I'm hanging out with Aiden and, and I'm like, Aiden, did you hear what Angie said? And I'm telling, a- telling Aiden what Angie said to me, right? What I'm doing, my love is out of order because I love popularity more than I love caring for Angie. Does that make sense? All, uh, we could go through case by case over and over again of all of these ways in which we get our love out of order. So in the Old Testament, when God's people get their love out of order, what begins to happen is a time of renewal. 
And if you pay attention to church history and you read through the Bible and you see the Old Testament over and over again, what happens is every time there is a sense of renewal, there is a commitment to God's word. Like, let's get back to what God says. Let's be reminded of what God tells us. Let's get back to his word. There's a movement of his spirit in some capacity. There's God moving among his people. There's discernment. There's a reality that's shaping in people's heads. There's an affection and a love that's growing. And there's these idols that are turned away from. And over and over and over again in the Old Testament, you could just read the Old Testament and just see over and over and over again, there is an idol, there is a love that is out of order, there is a mistake that is made, there is a recalling, there is a recommitment, there is a renewal, there is a return to God's word, there is a restructuring of loves that are out of order, and the people of God then repent and go back to something new. Psalms 115 verse 1 says this, it says, not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Here's the reality. 99% of the times when my loves are out of order, the reason why is because I want the glory and not God. The reason why is because I am selfish and not selfless. The reason why is I want what I want more than I want what God wants. So I've got to ask the questions, what do I love? Do I love the things that God loves? Do I hate the things that God hates? Do I sometimes love the things that God hates? Or do I hate the things that God loves? Like where have my loves gotten out of order? And I want to return to the Father and get back to a space where this matters. And so you might be asking, like, why does this matter in this series? When we're talking about consumerism, when we're talking about the church, when we're talking about individualism, when we're talking about just getting rid of the fluff, when we're talking about all of these things, I understand what this means for me personally, but what does this mean for us corporately? And here's what I would suggest. I would suggest that every single one of us walks in this room every single week with our loves out of order. I would say that we love to be entertained more than we love to serve. That we love to receive more than we love to give. That we love to be blessed more than we want to bless. That we love to be served more than we want to serve. And when 300 people are standing in a room each week saying, serve me, it's impossible for the church to do that. I want to be really clear with this. The church is not the church staff. The church is not the paid people who work for the church. The church is everyone. It is God's people gathered in God's place for God's purposes. It is God's people in this place. And when the church gets to a place, which I believe the church in America has gotten to this place, where everyone in the room is wanting to be served by a small few, we cannot win. I I won't give you our statistics at Grace Marietta, but I'll just give you some national statistics. How about that? All right? I actually know ours, but I'll spare you some of those things. In a typical church, less than 20% of the people give. In a typical church, less than 15% serve. In a typical church, less than 40% people stay longer than six months. In typical church, 
Uh, less than 20% of people attend three times a month or more. Less than 25% of people serve outside the walls of the church any day other than Sunday. So the, you can see, like the system gets broken when our loves are out of order because what we're doing is we're expecting 10 to 20% of the people to carry the heavy load of leading the church and of serving and blessing and caring and giving and doing all of those things. I, I've used this example before. It would be like us going to a Hawks game. How many Hawks fans do we have? That's what I thought, like seven. <laughs> right? Come on, guys. They're trying. They're trying. They are, they are firmly average right now. They are firmly average, right? Uh, I, and I don't blame you not being a Hawks fan right now or an NBA fan. If you've seen the courts for this uh, in-season tournament, anybody watched any of those games? My eyes are still bleeding from watching the games. It's impossible to watch a game. But it would be like all of us, it's, it, it, the church has become like a Hawks game. There are thousands of people that are in the crowd watching 10 people use their gifts and everybody else is just receiving and watching. And everybody else looks around and says, well, I can't shoot a jumper like Trey, so I'm, not, I'm out. I can't block a shot like Capella, so I'm out. Right? And, 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 and that's what the church has become. It's become, we've got to empty the stage because we've got to get to a place where the stage doesn't matter as much as what's happening out here. I could care less what happens in here if it doesn't motivate you to go out there. Right? We're just wasting our time every week. If I'm showing up every week preaching a 45-minute sermon or 30-minute sermon, depending on how excited I am that week, right? Like, like, I'm just wasting my time every week if it doesn't lead us outside the walls, if it doesn't lead us to movement beyond what we're doing in here. And I don't have time for that. I'm getting old. Like, I don't, I, I, I don't have time to do all of those things. So, so there's all of these symptoms that happen. When, 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 when you are the own idol of your own life, there are symptoms that begin to happen that I think the Psalms address. And my friend Kyle Eidelman said there's six symptoms that you could apply and that could apply to any church on Sunday that will help you understand what's going on with the dynamics both corporately and individually that we can see in ourselves and we can see in others. So the first of those symptoms is there's a general sense of entitlement. It's just a general sense of like, this is about me. When we gather to worship in this room, it is not about you. It is about Jesus crucified and risen again and moving and working in our community and in our hearts. Our worship is not for you. You are not the object of our worship. He is. Our sermons. We won't even get there. <laughs> Second is there's a lack of gratitude. We're going to talk about this a little bit more. Um, gratitude actually shapes our brain. It actually shapes the way our brain functions. We're going to talk about that later, so I'm going, to, I'm going to skip that. The third thing is that you're easily offended. If you are the, uh, the, the idol of your own heart, then, then any time that idol is challenged or questioned, you're offended. And so you very quickly fight and defend, and you entrench yourselves in certain beliefs, in certain uh, 
things, like there are words that set you off, there are phrases that set you off. You, you, you have what, what, uh, what, what psychologists call fundamental attribution error, which is when you give everybody else no credit or no grace, but you give yourself credit and grace all the time. So when somebody says something to you and you're like, I don't know if that was offensive or not, but I'm going to choose to be offended by that. Right? You, 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 we just find ways to be offended and we find things to be frustrated about. And I'm not sure, maybe the pastor was talking about me when he said that. Maybe this was about me. Maybe this song was about me. Maybe this service was about me. Like, no, it's not about you. I promise you. Our staff has never sat around and said, I wonder what Ryan T is going to think about this. Like, that is ne- we've never done that. We ask, what is Jesus going to think about this? Right? Uh, four is, is there's this self-worth that comes from comparison. Your self-worth is found in comparing yourself to others or, 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 or finding your self-worth based on what others are doing. And so you're constantly looking to see what others are doing and how they're flourishing and what's going on in their life. And you're comparing and competing with others. You, you criticize and blame. Like it's, guys, it's so easy to have a critical spirit right now. It's so easy to be cynical. Have you read the comment section of anything? <laughs> is there, I'm, I'm, I'm just, this is an honest question. Is there anywhere on the internet where the comment section is pleasant? Because we've learned to just criticize and blame and be defensive and get offended. That's the last one. You're constantly defensive. If you have all of these boundaries that you have to protect, then you've got to fight for them. You're constantly fighting for yourself. You're constantly fighting for your own justice. You're constantly fighting for your own worth. You're constantly fighting for everything. Like, so you have all of these boundaries that you have to protect, which is exhausting. Right? I was joking earlier about sports, but I, I'm, I'm being very serious. It's an idol in my life in a lot of ways. Like, I'll get on the internet right now, and right now especially, because they did cheat, right? But right now, like, as I'm, like, as I'm on there, as I'm on the, like, I'll see articles that are written, and I like feel myself getting angry. I'm like in the middle of my day working, I'm praying. Like I'm doing holy pastor things. And I like get on some article about my sports team, and somebody says something about my sports team, and all of a sudden like my day has shifted. Right? I, we, we have all of these boundaries that we want to protect. So the Psalms gives us a pathway to healing in all of this. And I want us to look at Psalms 119. Uh, we're not going to walk through all of Psalms 119. We would be here until next week if we did. Um, but we're going to start at verse 9. And here's where it starts. It says, how can a young man keep his way pure? So how do we, how do we stay holy in all this? Right? If, if all of our loves are out of order, if there's all these distractions, if we're all the idol of ourself, then, then how do we get through this? And it says, by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. The first thing that we do when we crush the idols is we do it by storing the word of God in our hearts. It's really interesting, the phrases that are used here. There are three phrases that are used. It's know the word, keep the word, and love the word are the three things that it says here. So the first thing that happens is we've got to know it. And in order to know it, we actually have to be in it. 
Right? So we've got to actually study it. We've got to open our Bible. We've got to pay attention to what God is saying and what God is doing. And the, beauty, the beautiful thing about knowing God's word is it's infinitely rediscoverable. Uh, in, is it three weeks? Three weeks. I, I know this. Three weeks is my 24th anniversary. Which means I've been married to my wife, Sarah, for 24 years. Uh, that's a long, long time. I'm starting to realize, like, that's older than some of you in the room right? Uh, We are way grown up in our marriage now. Uh, But what's amazing about being married for 24 years is I've been married to her for 24 years. I've slept beside her every night. I've had a conversation with her every day I come home from dinner. I've talked to her every day, and there's still things that I'm discovering about her. There's still things that I don't know. There's still things she's learning about me. There's still things that she doesn't know. There's this beauty in relationships where it's complex and beautiful and difficult and hard all at once because there is an ability to know. The same is true for Scripture. I've read John chapter 1. I mean, how many times? I don't know how many times I've read John chapter 1. A lot. But if I picked it up right now and read it, I'm certain there's something there that I could know. There's something there for me to see. The second thing is not just knowing it, but it's keeping it. It's, it's how does this not go in one ear and out the other, right? How do I not just uh, throw the seed on the ground and then immediately it's taken away the moment I walk out the door? How do we do those kinds of things? Because think about it. Uh, how, how many sermons have you heard in your lifetime? Who thinks they win on that? Like, who's like, I think I'm at the top? <laughs> at least top 10. Caden, you're too, way too young. Caden says he does. That's just because he's my son. But, like, <laughs> there's, there's some really old people in here uh, that have heard a lot more. Uh, how many Bible studies have you been in? How many times have you prayed? How many times have you opened the Word of God? What's the difference between hearing and keeping? Right? What's the difference between going through it and running to it? Right? Sorry, I'm getting pastoral. Uh, and then the last thing it says is we want to love it. We want to know it, we want to keep it, and we want to love it. So, so I want to love the things that God loves, and I want to hate the things that God hates. And I want to learn that my love is out of order. And so if I'm going to love God, I've got to reorient my loves so we catch ourselves in these things, right? We catch ourselves in these spaces. We, uh, like, I think one of the greatest challenges for discipleship for, uh, for our generation is that we're not even present to ourselves. Like, we're not even present to our own thoughts. And so I'm going through the day, and because I'm not even present to my thoughts, I don't even know where my loves are out of order, right? So I'm acting selfishly, But because I'm so busy and frantic and running from place to place and because there's not a moment of peace or quiet where I'm not on a phone or listening to something or learning something or working or talking to somebody, I miss the fact that, oh, wait, I was selfish right there. I I realized a few weeks ago, my daughter, you guys know Claire, Claire is 14. She is the most social child on the history of the earth. There is no one who has ever wanted to be with people more than Claire. And there is no one who wants to be with people more than Claire, which means she doesn't have a driver's license. Her brothers went off to college, and I am driving her all over creation, all the time, every moment of every day. And there's some coaching and teaching in there. Like, hey, hon, 
Maybe we should not make plans five minutes before it's time to leave, right? Like you're going to be disappointed if those kinds of things happen. Um, but I, I, I just caught myself like two weeks ago. And I, I've been doing it all year, right? I, whatever, I don't know, when did school start? Whenever school starts till now, I've been doing this all year. I've been irritated with her every time I get in the car with her. Because I'm like, I got, I'm busy. I got other stuff to do. I'm running you around everywhere. Whatever you're doing is not as important as what I'm doing. I promise you, right? You, you see all those things that we put up, those six things? Like, those are all in me. I'm defensive. I'm about me. I'm, I'm selfish. All of those things are going on in my head. And I, I reach a point where I realize, like, I'm actually being mean to my child in the car. I'm not paying attention to her. I'm not loving her well. I'm not caring for her. I'm being self. My love is out of order. My hatred for driving her around should not be greater than my love for her. Does that make sense? And when we're present to our own thoughts, we start to catch ourselves in these things. I want to love with my whole heart. Uh, I, I, uh, I want to show you a video, and I, somebody joked with me because they knew I was going to show this video, and, and they were like, didn't you talk about this guy a few weeks ago? He's one of my favorite theologians now. Uh, his name is Coach Prime. Um, I, I love me some Dion. I don't know where, I know the world is divided on Dion Sanders. Uh, I love me some Dion, and, uh, and, and I want to hear, because I think this is so important for us guys. When we're thinking about our loves out of order, I want you to hear how he talks about how his relationship with Jesus shapes him when trials come. All right, well, can we, can we get that going? If you could say or speak to them about the gospel of Jesus Christ, what would you say to them about your experience with Christ? I, I trusted man. I trusted woman. I trusted child. I trusted people, places, and things. And every last one of them have somehow, some way or another let me down. But not Jesus. But not Jesus. Not one day, not one time, not one moment. And I've learned to accept all things. And all things. When I tell you all things, I don't have bad days. All my days are good. All my days of learning uh, are there lessons, are there things that take me from faith to faith to glory to glory, are there ways that, that, that teaches me and trains me how to reach and how to teach and how to touch, how to inspire, how to encourage and how to motivate, all these different things. I've been through private hell and, and, and public hell and have had private success as well as public success. So everything is a learning tool for me and I'm going to take every last bit of it and try to encourage and motivate others to come to know Jesus. I don't care what anybody would say. I know what works for me and I want you, just like I go to a restaurant and tell you, hey man, there's some good food down here. I'm going to tell you, hey man, there's some good Jesus over here. the part that I love the most, all right? So the part that I love the most in that was he said this, I might have a bad minute, I might have a bad moment, I might have a bad second, but I don't have a bad day, right? You see the distinction there? Because what he's saying is when I have those moments that are setbacks, when I have those moments where my loves are out of order, when I have those moments where I make a mistake, when I have those moments when I miss it, when I have those moments when I fail, when those moments come, I don't allow those moments to destroy the whole rest of my day. 
That's, that's, the, that's the attitude of a follower of Jesus. I fell down. All right, I'm getting back up. This wasn't a great moment, so here's what I'm doing. I'm trusting that the next one's going to be good. It's so important in sports, guys. Like, think about it in sports, right? He's a, he's a coach. And I, I can remember my high school basketball coach would always say this. He'd be like, Hartman, no faces. Does anybody know what that means? He, he meant like... When things are going bad in the game, the other team can't know that things are going bad. And my emotions were always on my face, right? So what he would always be mad at me about is my guy would score, and then I would, and then I'd make a mistake on the other end because I allowed one mistake to determine the next mistake, right? And it, it free falls after that. And what, like, there's, there's this way of training our mind, right? To say, all right, Jesus, I have another day with you. All right, Jesus, I have another moment with you. Some bad things happened today. They were not what I wanted to happen. They were not what I hoped for. They were not what I dreamed of. They were not what I wanted to happen. But I'm trusting that you're good. And I'm trusting that you're teaching me in the midst of this. And I view my life every day as a moment to grow. You know what the discipleship curriculum for your life is? It's your life. It's not a sermon. It's not whatever Francis Chan or Beth Moore is putting out these days. It's your life, right? Like when we have that attitude as followers of Jesus, we're unstoppable. All right, I got I to move a lot faster. Verse 13, with my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the ways of your testimony I delight as much in all the riches. We crush the idols by telling of the goodness of God. By telling of the goodness of God. Gratitude actually reshapes our affections. And so we recognize the giver of good gifts. And we set our hearts on gratitude. We're moving into Thanksgiving week. This is easy for us this week. We're all thinking about it. It's the one week a year where we ask each other, what are you thankful for? Right? What if we were doing that all the time? Josh Brown just recently did a series of tests at the University of Cal Berkeley to discover if gratitude really did reshape your brain. And what they did was they had three test groups, around 300 people in each test group. Group number one, every single day, wrote a letter of gratitude to somebody in their life and sent it. Every single day, they were given around $100 and told to go give it to somebody who needed it and figure out a place where they could be generous. That's what group one did. Group two just did whatever they were doing before. Right? Whatever you're doing before, just, we're not asking you to do anything. We just want to scan your brains. Group three, every day, had to write about what hurt them, what frustrated them, or what made them angry. And so they took time every day to writing what had frustrated them, angered them, made them irritated. And every week, they would do brain scans of all of these different people. Guess which brain scan was working it gets, so what happened was there was greater activation in the prefrontal cortex, right? Which is where our regulators are, right? And so this group of 300 people who were doing things with gratitude, their brain was actually becoming accustomed to it and they were becoming more alive. How beautiful is it, guys, that our creator has actually embedded the principles of this book into our very DNA, like into our brain. When, when, when the psalm says, praise him, 
When the psalm says, tell your story, when Revelation said that the two things that we need are the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, those aren't just pretenses. They're not just stories. They're not just principles. They're actually the very way our hearts and minds are made and created. You were made and created to worship God. You were made and created to be his son and his daughter. You were made and created to give him glory and honor. You were made and created to be grateful for the work that he's done in your life. And when we walk in that, something changes, not just in our hearts, right? Not just in our posture. It actually changes our brains. How crazy is that? I'm, I'm, go, I'm going to go way too long if I don't move faster, all right? Uh, verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts. I will fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight on the statutes. I will not forget your word. Number three is we crush our idols by praying and fixing our eyes on Jesus. When we have those moments, like Coach Prime just said, when we have those moments, when we have a bad moment, we have a bad second, we have a bad something, our eyes quickly go to Jesus. If we're living in the six characteristics of self, right, then our eyes instantly go to us. The, the thing that we ask when things go wrong is, what about me? 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 If our eyes and hearts are focused on Jesus, we just turn our attention right there again. I have to have regulators in my life that turn my attention from me to the Father. I have to have people in my life who love me enough to turn my attention from self to Jesus. I have to have moments where I am reorienting my loves that are out of order. When things go wrong, I don't immediately jump to, I'm going to work harder, I'm going to try and do more, I'm going to accomplish, I'm going to win, I'm going to save, I'm going to perform, I'm going to, all of those things. I need to have a return to, I'm going to quiet myself. And I'm going to sit in front of the Lord and say, what do you want from me? This is a Jesus modeled over and over again. When they tried to make him king, where did he go? Got alone, went to the Father. When they tried to kill him, what did he do? Went alone and got to the Father. And whether the crowd is sh shouting, king him or kill him, our response is always to fix our eyes on Jesus. It's always to return and to go back to him. And, and where our eyes go is, is, is where our heart goes, right? I'm, I'm not much of a runner. I've joked about jogging in the tight shorts and all of those things. I, I'm not much of a runner, but I, I, I played sports in college and, and, and high school, and so I had to run a little bit. We had to run like a four-mile run for basketball every year. And I was not a distance runner. I could do the sprints. But that four-mile thing was always hard on me. And I remember my freshman year, we're running, and I'm, like, dying. I'm, like, ugh, falling over. I was not in good shape. I weighed, like, 83 pounds and was the same height I am now. I, I, I just was lanky and goofy. And, and one of the kids that was on the varsity team was, like, just this great leader. And he was running beside me. And he said, Hardman, just look at that street sign at the end of the street. Look at that. Run to that. Don't take your eyes off of that. Look at the street sign. Get to the street sign. And as soon as you get to that street sign, look to the next one. Like, focus your eyes on that and go in that direction. I, I've taught two kids how to drive. We're about to teach a third. Right? You guys all know this. If you're teaching kids how to drive, wherever their eyes are going, that's where the car is going. <laughs> right? They'll be the, 
And all of a sudden, the car is going that way. They're looking that way, they're getting, and the car is going that way, right? You've got to, we've, we've got to live out this principle of wherever my eyes are, my heart's going to follow. And so you can have a moment of difficulty and a moment of challenge and a moment that you get it wrong, but resilient people just keep focusing their attention and their affection back to Jesus. And, and I... Like, I, 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 I really believe this. I was praying this morning, and, and the Lord kind of just drew me to this. I think there are people in this room right now where something has happened to you that was hard and difficult and challenging, and it's taken your eyes off of Jesus. And it's derailed you not just for weeks, not just for months. It's derailed you for decades. And I think there's an invitation today from the living God to say, just bring your eyes back. Could you just fix your eyes on me? I know you're looking at what happened to you. I know you're looking at the pain and the difficulty and the challenge, and I'm sorry that it's hard. Right? God's eyes coming back to you. When we were singing this morning, Blake, I was thinking of the quote that I love this quote. It's just, it's just picture Jesus picturing you and smiling. Like oftentimes when I'm worshiping, I'm just like, I'm just picturing God looking at me and like God's looking at me over here as I'm about to preach and he's not like, hey Ben, you don't have your stuff together. Hey Ben, you should have studied more. Hey Ben, you should have whatever. He's not giving me a list of shoulds or whatevers. He's looking at me and he's smiling and saying, I'm proud of my son. I'm proud of my daughter. Picture Jesus picturing you and smiling. When you fix your eyes on him, you find grace. You find healing. You find resurrection for what's broken. But we can't get there if we don't focus our eyes. Verse 17 and 18, and then I'll wrap up. Dear bountifully with your servant, that I may keep your word. In verse 18, this is what I want us to take to communion today. Open my eyes, that I may behold the wondrous things of your law. Open my eyes, that I may behold the wondrous things out of your law. We, we crush the idols by desiring what God wants. And so we're going to move into a time of communion. There's stations set up all around the room, and you can go and you can take the bread and take the juice. And as you do, I, I want to give you a question to ask Jesus or to ask the Holy Spirit in that space. And the question is, what do you want to open my eyes to? Where have my loves gotten out of order? Where have I been so asleep in my everyday life that I've missed what you're calling me to? And could we trust that he's moving? Could we trust that he's speaking? And could we trust that I really believe the Holy Spirit of God wants to awaken us to that thing that's been hidden? Wants us to turn in some capacity back to him. And wants us to empty the stage of our lives and return back to him. So Heavenly Father, I pray that you would do now what I can't do. Pray that you would move and work and have your way pray that you would silently, gently, kindly remind us where we've gotten off track, remind us where our loves have gotten out of order, and call us back. So I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would open our eyes so that we might behold the wondrous things you have for us. We trust that there's wonder on the other side of our frustration. We trust that you are the one who can help us, and we trust that you're good. So it's in Jesus' name we pray.